Can the rule of law fix monetary problems? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Dan Smith. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Dan Smith. Dan is the director of the Political Economy Research Institute and professor of economics in the Jones College of Business at Middle Tennessee State University. He serves as the North American co-editor of the Review of Austrian Economics and is the president-elect of the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics. His academic research and policy work uses Austrian and public choice economics to analyze private and public governance institutions. While his primary research areas are on monetary institutions and public pensions, he has also done fieldwork following natural disasters and even examined the governance institutions of brawling soccer hooligans, cyclists in the Tour de France, and the patricians of historic Venice. Other academic and policy research he has undertaken examines the effects of occupational licensing, payday lending regulation, and the morality of markets. He's also the co-author of Money and the Rule of Law, Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions, written with Pete Betke and Alexander Salter, and that book will form the basis of most of our conversation today. Dan, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you. And it's great to have you on. So, Dan, we frame each of our episodes around a question and just go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, can the rule of law fix monetary problems? And there's a lot to unpack here, obviously. And before jumping right into how exactly we solve certain problems, we should get into which ones exist in a bit of context that way. So I'd like to start here. Um, You and your co-authors note in the aforementioned book in our intro that a common narrative is that central banking and its methodologies has drastically improved throughout the 20th century. This is a common narrative. And into the 21st, we have lessons learned that helps us achieve relative stability and things are going a lot better than before, so to speak. But then you say, quote, this narrative, while wildly believed, is questionable at best. Why is this the case? I know we can't go into every little detail, but can you trace some high-level history and, and sort of where we're at today and say, why is this general narrative people hear about the you know, progressive improvement of central banking and its methodologies. Why, why is this questionable at best? Where are we at now? Yeah, so th- th- this is a great question to start off with. Uh, and, and where we frame the discussion is we think that central banking is essentially become, it's become an, an epistocracy. It's ruled by experts. We have the high priests of central banking um, that we put in place in, in essentially an a unaccountable position, unelected position, um, largely unaccountable position, and ask them to use their discretion to you know, plan the, 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 the commanding heights of the economy through the monetary system. Um, and the question is, is whether giving central bankers this discretion actually improves um, policy over other types of institutions, such as the gold standard or free banking. And we um, argue, looking at the, the modern evidence on central banking and, and looking at the history and comparison of, of these alternative systems, that central banking has largely failed to achieve its own ends. And that's because its means end inconsistent. If you want to achieve the objectives of central banking, you need to apply the rule of law and have binding rules on monetary authorities to create generality and predictability in money. And that gives it the democratic justifiability necessary to, to, to um, give um, you know, meaning and purpose to central banking, the legitimacy um, that right now it, it lacks. Um, and the primary issue is that set, well, we view um, central bankers view monetary policy as um, a prerogative of their own rather than as trying to maintain the property rights of citizens to sound money. Right. Okay. No, that's excellent overview. And there's a lot I'm going to drill into. And one thing I'm going to do, especially for the listeners who might not be as familiar with the, with this topic too, is I kind of want to make sure we're able to separately investigate sort of the monetary policy side of this and then the, the sort of more justice discussion around it with the rule of law and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. on, on the monetary policy side, actually, I want to pick up on something you just talked about. You said, and, you know, the idea is that these people have prerogative, but they're so, supposed to operate with some sort of constraint. And in your book, you talk about this idea of, of constrained discretion for central banks. And ultimately, that, that's not a good thing. So can, can you get into a little more detail about what constrained discretion is? Like, for example, we take the Federal Reserve in the United States. What kind of strained, constrained discretion are they operating under? And what are the kinds of things that they have prerogative on? But they are supposed to be a little constrained, like theoretically, of course, what's really supposed to be happening? 
Yeah, so the, the history of constraining discretion is actually really interesting in that there was a big academic debate about whether central um, uh, central bankers should be constrained by a, a tight rule or if we should give them discretion to um, uh, tailor monetary policy to the, the specific time and places they saw fit. And in the academic literature, the debate, uh, the, the winners of that debate were actually those arguing for tight rules. Um, but to, to, to the puzzlement of economists, after that debate was won by those arguing for rules, in practice, central banking increasingly became more discretionary. What we mean by constrained discretion is it's the, the modern parlance uh, for describing giving monetary uh, authorities um, the leeway to operate according to some informal rules that they have the right to deviate from as they see fit. So essentially, it's not having any rules. It's essentially just discretion. Uh, but when they say constrained discretion, it makes it sound a little bit more like we're um, you know, putting some type of rule structure on them. But really, especially if we're talking about the Federal Reserve, they were following an informal um, inflation target that they were able to deviate from as they saw fit. And there were no uh, enforcement mechanisms, no punishment for deviating from that informal rule. Um, so essentially what we argue is we have a lawless, we have lawless central bankers that they say they're putting a rule of law, but they're the judge and the ex- ex- executioner. They get to decide when that rule is enforced and how and when they can deviate from it. So essentially is lawless. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, and so, and as I said, although this might not be happening now, just to clarify one point you're saying, so, so the idea was that the constraints, even though there aren't really any, as you're saying in practice, um, the idea is that the constraints were supposed to be what things, things like targeting, like inflation targets, the idea that you're constrained by expectations of stability in the economy. Again, was that the idea in theory that these are the kinds of things that would ultimately constrain these, these folks that have this prerogative? Yeah, so there were um, the most popular rule advanced was the Taylor rule. And this was just a rule that we already tell central bankers that they have to um, maximize employment subject to the constraint of long term price stability. So they have two, two primary objectives, unemployment and long term price stability. And what the Taylor rule does is it just formalizes it and puts weights on it on each of these objectives and says, whenever unemployment changes or when long-term price stability changes, this is how the central bank should react. So it was is a very tight, strict rule that they would have to follow. Um, and, and they followed that informally, but like I said, um, they were given the discretion to deviate from that rule as they saw fit. Right, right. And just tie that into another thought, you know, in the book, you you, you folks, you and your co-authors blatantly say sort of, you know, that, you know, the central bank discretion ultimately defeats the purpose of having a central bank in, in the first place. And again, we'll, I want to get into the sort of rule of law discussion in a little bit, but but strictly, you know, from a, from a monetary policy perspective, um, you, you know, some say that, you know, discretion can be a good thing, but you're saying, you know, it ultimately isn't. So, Again, from a, from a monetary policy perspective, why is the idea of sort of like a you know an independent central bank with this discretion just just a, a, a bad idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we use a, an example from Ben Bernanke. So Ben Bernanke, I believe it was in two thousand and two, as a governor of the Federal Reserve, it was at Milton Friedman's ninetieth birthday party, and he said, as a representative of the Federal Reserve, I'm going to take this moment to apologize, to admit that the Federal Reserve created the Great Depression. And thanks to you, and he's pointing at Milton Friedman, thanks to you, we won't do this again. So this was Ben Bernanke, arguably like the Neil Pert of central banking. He is the person you wanted, expert. He was, his academic research was on the, the Great Depression, um, really good academic scholar, well-recognized, a good practitioner with a lot of policy experience. He is who you wanted at the, the helm of the central bank during a crisis. And here he is saying, you know, just a couple of years before the financial crisis hits, saying this won't happen again. And of course it did happen again. And we argue in the book, it was almost the exact same type of problem with the Great Depression, that monetary policy was initially too loose. And then when you hit the crisis, it became too tight. So even with really highly qualified public servants like Ben Bernanke at the helm of central banks, discretionary central banking still fails um, time and time again. And it creates drastic um, uh, it, it's not just like small failures, it's drastic failures like the financial crisis and the Great Depression. Um, and that's why we argue against constrained um, discretion. Simply uh, put, central bankers do not have the knowledge 
or the incentives to actually um, be able to carry out the tasks that we assign to them as central bankers. Right. And and I, just to tie into that thought a little more too, you know, let's say one granted that discretion can be a good thing just for the sake of argument. Um, but but even then, you and your co-authors would seem to claim that discretion is susceptible to being pushed by in flawed directions anyway that aren't even monetary, right? Like that is to say for strict monetary policy reasons. So I'm just going to pull a quote here and read it. So you folks say in the book, Central central bank independence often fails in practice under pressure from executive, legislative, and special interest groups precisely because there is genuine uncertainty about the correct course for monetary policy. So there's actually like two two things going on there. One you've already touched on, which is you know the, the knowledge problem and, and you know uh, uncertainty about the correct course for monetary policy. I'll park that for a second. But on that first part, I'm quite interested. So. Un, being under the pressure of the executive, legislative, and special interest groups. For for those completely unfamiliar with this kind of thing, because again, the picture that these folks would paint of themselves is there's a boardroom and there's a head of people, you know, pulling levers and just doing their central banking thing off to the side. Where do these tie-ins come from? Can you provide some examples and tell us on principle how this pressure sort of works that that we have to be worried about? Yeah, so we, we largely see the pressures exerted on central bankers as being both one internal and then external. Mm. So the internal pressures um, are, are the b- normal bureaucratic pressures that you would expect from any bureaucracy, right? Budget maximization, um, inertia, self-preservation. Um, remember in, in 2002, when Ben Bernanke gave the apology for the Great Depression, finally admitting that the Federal Reserve caused the, the, the Great Depression, that was 70 years after the Great Depression, right? This is how long it takes for 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 this uh, for this to work through in a bureaucracy and actually um, come out. Right. Um, and in our, our recent switch, um, at least um, in the United States, from a um, corridor, um, and, and I don't want to get too technical, but we had a major shift in how we conducted monetary policy from a corridor to a to a floor system, and large. And I don't think there were good justifications for that change for maintaining it after we kind of stumbled into it. And yet we stuck with it just because that was um, where we were, you know? Um, So there's a lot of inertia. Um, I also think there's a lot of influence on the economics profession from central banks. Central banks are uh, around the world, some of the largest employers of monetary economists. So this creates um, the danger of groupthink. And there are certainly economists like Alan Blinder who have, have, come out and said, hey, there was there's suppression of research or, you know, I, I, was, I was ousted because, um, you know, my views weren't accepted. Paul Krugman has reportedly been um, cut from invite lists to Federal Reserve conferences because um, he has criticized the Federal Reserve. Uh, so there's just a real danger that you have a lot of groupthink um, in the monetary uh, profession, given the dominance of, of, of central bank- bankers as the, the primary employers of economists. Now, the external pressures are the more interesting ones and probably the more influential ones. And we break these into debt accommodation, political influence, and special interest groups. So by debt accommodation, this is that even if a central bank um, just wants to maintain even keel policy, if the government issues a lot of new debt, they have to adjust their their policy in response to that uh, issuance of debt. Um, So they have to accommodate it in order to keep rates um, on target of where they want them to be um, simply um, because of that, that new debt, uh, debt uh, entering the market. Uh, and we saw this um, under president Trump, um, his, uh, his uh, fiscal policies um, pushed the federal reserve to adjust their policy in response to that, accommodating that even though they didn't really want to, they were forced to just to, to keep going on the policy as they wanted to. And certainly um, debt accommodation could get worse under some of the, the new theories out there, such as modern monetary theory, uh, which would create a lot more, um, which argues for creating a lot more debt um, issued through the central bank um, or helicopter drops where they would create um, a, a accounts for individuals at the Federal Reserve and then simulate the economy by um, debit or putting credits into those accounts. Um, those would create even more external pressures when it comes to debt accommodation. Now, the political influence, this is um, the legislative and uh, executive branch. Um, first, the, the executive um, you know, uh, branch, in, in, at least in the United States, gets to appoint the board chair and vice chairs of the Federal Reserve, and the legislative branch gets to approve those, at least the Senate does. Um, but the, the, the Fed is a, is a creature of Congress, and Sarah Binder and Mark Spindle have a great book, The Myth of, of, of 
independence, uh, detailing all the, the congressional and uh, pressures that have been exerted on the, the Federal Reserve. Hmm. In our book, we go through some of the, the presidential pressures that have been exerted. These go from, um, you know, we, the obvious ones were the recent ones with like President Trump tweeting out to the Federal Reserve, like get rates down and right. um, try, trying to push them to change their policy. But that's not that it, that was very explicit and obvious when Trump did it, but that's been going on for for decades. We have the the Nixon tapes of of Richard Nixon doing that um, to uh, to Burns, Arthur Burns, um, literally saying he had him in the office in, in the Oval Office and said, "Get the rates down." The Federal Reserve is not independent. He is laughing about it um, and essentially saying your job is on the line, right? If if you want to still be uh, the chairperson of the Fed, you better you better comply with this, right? Um, so pretty explicit attempts. And, and some economists have even measured uh, mentions in the Wall Street Journal, uh, like leaks from the, the presidential administration, um, critiques of the Fed in certain capacities. And those have actually have a measurable impact on what the Fed ends up doing as well. Mm. Um, so there's lots of lots of ways for that political influence to manifest itself. And I think especially during a time of a crisis, if you're a central banker and everyone is saying you have to do something, even if your gut, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. It's a lot of risk to not do what everyone else is asking, because if you just do what everyone else is telling you to do, step in, be the savior of the economy, and it fails, you could be like, OK, we tried our best and that was the best idea we had. Everyone agreed. Um, but if you go against what everyone is saying and stick to your instincts, then uh, you, you run the risk of if things go bad, being, you know, you're the one solely blamed for for the failure. Um, so there, there's a natural conservatism in central banking that um, I think makes them yield to this political influence. Then finally, I think the one of the most interesting uh, forms of, of influence on a central bank is actually special interest groups. These are the, the major financial institutions, um, such as like Goldman Sachs, um, that not only deal frequently with um, the Federal Reserve or you know central banks around the world, they um, you know, the central banks actually rely on them, especially in a time of crisis for information. Right. And that creates a bias, right? They're, they're just calling up like, hey, what's going on? We need real-time information. And that opens up a channel of influence for them to bias which way the policy goes. Then there's also a, a concerning revolving door where the uh, the people working at Goldman Sachs end up working at the Federal Reserve or the Treasury, and then they rotate back and forth. Um, so it, it sends, you know, there's just a you know, people rotating through, maintaining those positions. So there's a lot of potential for for bias there. Right. Yeah. Especially on that last part, too, we were talking about the special interest groups. You know, again, we talk about the idea of central bank independence. But if what we actually really, in, in, in fact, in practice, start thinking about and talking about is this idea of an independent sector, almost, if you will, over there between the central bank and, as you said, some of these large financial institutions like in the United States, um, not only having a revolving door sort of information, but people exchanging different executive positions and, you know, what's good for the central bank sort of starts becoming good for the financial institutions, which, of course, becomes good for the economy. Obviously, there's a lot of trouble to be said for that, right? Absolutely. And even in between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. So, you know, in 1951, mm-hmm. there's a big Fed Treasury Accord in, in the United States um, where, you know, the, the Federal Reserve insisted we are independent of the Treasury. Treasury, We are not the financing bank of the government um, and declared independence. Um, but that has essentially gone away. Now they're, they're walking in lockstep. It's very clear there's coordination between um, fiscal and monetary policy, especially during a time of crisis. Um, and now we have a former chairperson of the Federal Reserve who is now serving uh, at the Treasury. Um, so, you know, it, it just creates uh, a lot of conflict of interest um, that, you know, at the origins of central banking, we, we were attempting to prevent. Right, ex- exactly. And and just to continue on that thought for as well, like, so back to this idea of like the central bank independence, even if someone were to grant, hey, like, you know, everything, Dan, that you just talked about, you know, life isn't perfect, at least we have something over there that's doing such and such theoretically, that's actually supposed to render, you know, good outcomes, and maybe it's not perfect, but it stabilized the economy, they're do- trying to do their thing. Um, I want to connect another thought to that based, you know, based on all the things you were just saying as well, which is in the previous chat with one of your co-authors that we had, actually Alex Salter, we talked about how, uh, you know, central bank authorities, especially in the U.S., 
have recently been acting more like fiscal authorities with their prerogatives rather than monetary authorities. Now, now this is like a, actually like a, I think another subtle step into the conversation we're having, right? Like it's one thing to say that you have an independent entity over here, constrained monetary policy that's susceptible to pressures and all that stuff, which is bad enough. I'm not downplaying that, but, um, but to add that little extra layer of nuance, which basically says that, that in and of itself, their nature is actually changing from being a monetary institution, which might be susceptible to some things, to actually starting to act and behave more like a fiscal institution or like a political institution, that's quite interesting to me. And I want to know, I want to throw a thought in there to ask if you had any thoughts or you want to verify that or expand on it or anything that comes to mind when I, when I throw that at you. Yes, I completely agree. I think as Congress becomes more polarized and it's more difficult to get some of the initiatives that some parties want through Congress, um, one of the backdoors way to do this is to the Federal Reserve. Right. It's more it's quick. It's it's less politically difficult. Um, and um, at least for the United States, uh, the Federal Reserve. Um, so if you look at their their leaning, it's clear there there's a bias towards the, the left among um, those that work at the Federal Reserve. Um, so it, it's just easy to implement through the Federal Reserve, uh, through the Federal Reserve, especially during a time of crisis. And that's why the initial covid bill in the United States actually had a provision for a Fed now account which would have created those um, individual accounts at the Federal Reserve, which would allow which would have allowed the central bank to actually stimulate the economy. So that would have been that dangerous step from moving from a, a monetary authority to um, conducting fiscal policy. And I just like Alex and you, I, I think that's a real concern. And that's definitely the, the trajectory they're on. Right. And even even the climate sometimes of the discussion around this sort of thing, if you flip on a news channel or even like a, even a business news network, you know, you don't really see people talking about, oh, you know, you got these politicians uh, and then they're doing something. And then the, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board's over there and, and you know, we'll just see what he has to say in Congress. These folks are almost all starting to be talked about more and more as if they're part of the political system. You know, what's Cong- what, what's the House of Representatives doing? What's the Senate doing? What's the president doing? And what's the what's the chairman of the <laughs> Or the board of the Federal Reserve doing? Let's get him in on this political conversation. I think even the way it's discussed, at least from what I've seen, also lends a lot of credence to what Alex Salter was saying too, and what you were just saying, which is this has even become becoming rhetorically more political. Yes, and and what's interesting about this is that um, you, some of your listeners may know that the the Federal Reserve, at least some of the Federal Reserve presidents, have recently had somewhat of an ethics scandal. Um, related to insider trading, trading on their um, unique knowledge that they received in their position. And that has brought up a big question of, are they actually public employees? Um, because if they are public employees, then they could be held accountable to public employee law. Um, but they actually, most people are thinking that they aren't. The, the, the presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks are actually private employees. Um, so they are not, um, they, they could still be, be held to, to private law, but not the, the the public um, official law, um, which is quite interesting for a institution that has such a drastic impact on the economy and is clearly, um, um, you know, controlled by Congress. Right, exactly. And, and at the end of the day, as uh, to add on to everything we just said too, as the book notes, you know, and, and as you've also noted in this chat already, central banks are ultimately bureaucracies at the end of the day. And they're dealing with all this kind of stuff. You know, like you said, the, the external pressure, the internal pressure, these aren't small agile businesses by any means on the market, for instance, with a storefront. This is, this is a huge bureaucracy with a huge legacy with lots of different competing incentives with nothing to say for the monetary policy they're supposed to be managing. So I think that in and of itself is sort of on top of everything we've just talked about, right? Is the bureaucratic nature of this whole thing, as you were saying before. Absolutely. And that also makes it difficult to reform it because now you have an entrenched bureaucracy invested in the current structure. So if you want to make any type of drastic reform, well, you got to go up against this entrenched bureaucracy. And it's not just like entrenched bureaucracy, like, um, you know, a regular public employees. These are, are well-respected, uh, like I said, high priest. Um, so right. it, it's, a, it, you know, it, it, there, there's additional hurdle. It's not just public employees. It's public employees that actually have a lot of um get a lot of respect from um, ordinary people that don't um, understand monetary policy. Right. And there's even a so- social sort of capitalism game going to at that point, too, within within the bureaucracy. Right. I mean, if someone promises someone a favor for a certain position or someone's got to like, you know, a whole set of a whole set of other incentives beyond just actually what the job is on a day to day basis also comes into play, too, when you have such a large structure that can control so much as well. Absolutely. 
And uh, I'm going to get one more question here before we actually head to our break, uh, just to tie off sort of the stricter monetary policy part of our conversation, just quick mental experiment to tie back into another thing you talked about earlier. So let's just assume there's a world without bad or perverse incentives and all these folks have the best intentions and they're just trying to do their professional job as independent central bankers, just trying to manage things properly within constrained discretion and so on and so forth. And so another important pillar to your uh, to you and your co-authors approach in the book and, and your thinking and, and even something you mentioned here is that even if that were true, um, we still have the knowledge problem to deal with. And for, and for those unfamiliar with that, um, you know, I just wanted you to get a little bit more into that too. So again, this is just for the listeners again, this is just assuming that none of what Dan said applies. We still can't assume that these folks can just sit in a boardroom and, and take care of things with all the supposed information they're getting. Yeah, so we, we split these knowledge problems up into technical problems and then true knowledge problems. And the technical problems, just real quick, is um, number one, objectives, two, targets, three, instruments, and four, calibrating models. So uh, I grew up in Michigan as a hockey fan, so I, I could put this in terms that uh, a Canadian can, can relate to. So the objective is the net. Targets are the, the, the puck. The instrument is the stick. And the calibrating model is, is the assessment process of whether you actually got the puck into the net. Um, but unlike hockey, we argue, there are a lot of technical problems. The actual objectives of central banking are unknown. So it's like there, there's multiple nets to shoot to, and you don't actually know which one is the appropriate one. And there's legitimate debate about, you know, and they could be inconsistent with each other, right? right? Trying to hit this net could actually prevent you from hitting the other net. Um, it, and we, we see this, uh, you know, we've we give examples of central bankers actually changing the weights, priorities they give to different objectives and creating new objectives, such as um, environmental policy, inequality, exchange rate stabilization. Other factors have entered um, the discussion at times influencing um, central banking policy. So it isn't clear that we actually have a good firm objective. The target, um, you know, the puck itself Um there's lots of different pucks. We don't actually know which one is the right one to hit, right? There's the Fed funds rate. There's term structure of interest. There's inflation and GDP targeting. Um, there's all sorts of, of concern, even if you choose one of those, like average inflation targeting. Well, over how long of a range are you going to calculate the, the average? How quickly are you going to get back to the average once there's a deviation? Um, you know, what are the, the, the allowable ranges? Um, lots of fuzziness there that makes it um, very difficult to actually know, you know, which puck you're trying to hit. The instrument itself, um, you know, actually, you know, the traditional um, policies of buying and selling treasuries, the required reserve ratio, penalty rate. Um, but now there's a whole bunch of slew of new types of programs, such as um, interest on excess reserves, direct lending, large-scale asset purchases, maturity extensions. Um, and to trying to figure out the magnet. So just trying to figure out which instrument you should be using and then to figure out um, the, the timing and management of it is really, really difficult. So to go back to our hockey example, it's like um, not the new fiberglass sticks that are tailored for each player. So it's like the old fashioned wood sticks that just have a flat edge um, and you don't know where the sweet spot is because it keeps changing around. So you don't quite know how and when to hit the puck. Um, and then calibrating models. Um, this is, you know, put your dipstick into the economy. So following your intervention to see how, okay, how well did we do? Well, there's lots of different metrics for measuring how the economy is doing interest rates, labor markets, the housing market, you know, Greenspan at some time, he, he was reportedly said he was looking at men's underwear sales. <laughs> um, people have, you have these gold conference attendance. There's lots of different ways. So, um, you know, go to tie it back to the hockey example, rather than um, this being like a, a goal camera where you can explicitly see if the, the, the puck has crossed the, the goal line. This is more like the three blind men, the, 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 the rep, the referees that, um, um, you know, don't have a perfect view and you don't actually know uh, there's, there's a question mark on whether it went in or not. Um, so it, it's, it's really, those all, those are all technical problems that make, um, uh, monetary policy very very difficult, but the real knowledge problem is actually when it comes to trying to project what the demand for money is. Right. If you if you have a fiat monopoly supplier of currency, they have to adjust that supply of currency in response to changes in the demand for money. Otherwise, you result in monetary disequilibrium disequilib equilibrium and all the problems that that causes. Um, 
Sure, central bankers can can look at aggregate data over a long time period and come up with a, an estimate of the long run demand for money. But we do not commission central bankers to operate in the long run. Bernanke and his his lectures about the Federal Reserve actually argued if you care only about long-run price stability, the gold standard is far superior to to discretionary central banking. What we commission central bankers for is the short and medium-run fluctuations, that they're they're able to mitigate those. But of course, they can't if they don't know what the demand for money is in the short and medium term, which we don't, especially during a time of crisis. Um, The demand for money could be driven by changes in demographics, inflation, taxation, fiscal policy, um, pretty much anything um, can affect the demand for money, new technology. Um, A good example is the introduction of sweep accounts. Um, I think this was in the 80s. It threw the Fed off course. They were completely fooled because they didn't know that their demand for money was manifesting itself in a new capacity. And that's a, a sweep accounts are pretty uh, tame technology compared to all the things we have today, such as non fungible tokens, cryptocurrencies. People are, are are manifesting the demand for money in all sorts of new creative ways. Um, I, I think it's it's, it's it, it, we argue that it is impossible for the central bank to accurately predict what the demand for money is. Just as like it's it's impossible for central planners to to, to plan the economy effectively, um, they suffer from that same knowledge problem. Right, right, and not to mention the fact in everything you're talking about, a lot of people, uh, you know, when when they do talk about the economy, sometimes they talk about it just as that the the economy, as if there's this sort of box over here that this other box, which is the monetary authorities, have to kind of poke and prod, and then this 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 one box called the economy will go up or down but in reality in that box of the economy we have people with all their subjective preferences their own goals that are changing themselves to add more goalposts and discussions to that right uh, you know those are moving around constantly you could have an industry that could collapse for good reason that was actually looked at as something that's supposed to be around forever um you know take your pick as you said with technology and things like that so not only is everything you just talked about happening but on on top of that you know things can just happen in the economy based on the preferences and what's actually happening in the economy that might have to do with some short run stability or whatever the the case may be. But with all the incentives and all the other things you talked about, people might either rush to fix it or be influenced by that when they shouldn't be anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's particularly difficult for them to know and respond to um, when you take into consideration supply shock problems. So when there's a positive supply shock, um, the, the central bank is going to see um, prices go down, but that's the, the economy is getting better. Like that's when they actually actually uh, tighten rates. Um, so the, the it's going to lead them to to the to implement policy in the wrong direction. And we're actually seeing that um, knowledge problem manifest itself right now with COVID nineteen. We we actually you know what's happening with the economy. It, it's, it's, it's very uncertain. And whether the, the Federal Reserve should be tightening monetary policy or easing up on monetary policy is a heated debate. And a, a lot of monetary experts are saying we should actually uh, loosen policy at this time, not tighten it. Um, but the political pressure and the, the, the incentives are all, well, inflation is going up. So we, we, we should uh, actually... Um, uh, tighten policy right now. So it's, it's leading them, um, we, we would argue, um, to, to the exact wrong policy that they per- should be pursuing at this time. Right, exactly. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Smith today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. As always, feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A huge thanks to our supporters, as always, on Patreon, including Elizabeth Aragona, Janet Bufton, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Dan Smith today. So, Dan, I think the, the first half was great. I think we laid a lot of the discussion down, exploring some of the principles of what the central bank is theoretically supposed to be doing. We talked about uh, constrained discretion. We talked about some of the incentives that the central bankers faced and so on and so forth and, 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 and all that stuff. And as I said at the beginning of our chat, I was going to try and push you more into sp- strictly monetary policy stuff before we bring it back to the rule of law stuff. So, so now we actually get to do that. So I want to kick off our second half here by saying, as we discussed, we know for economic reasons, as we've been, as you know, through our chat, so a central bank with discretion might just be a bad idea. But 
the book, this book that we, you know, racing a lot of our chat on and, and you're thinking and your co-authors thinking goes further than this and notes that central bank discretion, quote, implicitly violates the basic jurisprudential norms of liberal democracy. Okay. Now, obviously, one of the most important, you know, uh, liberal norms is the rule of law, which we're going to talk about in a sec. But I just want to stop there and appreciate for a second. Not many people are used to hearing monetary policy so passionately joined with discussions of liberal justice. So I think this is great. You know, a lot of people think of like, you know, we got, again, the monetary policy over there and we can leave the, the liberal justice stuff to the political theorists and political economists, perhaps. So why do you and your co-authors, monetary experts, passionately make this connection between monetary policy and, and, and the sense of liberal democratic justice? Just, just that bridge in of itself is interesting to me, and I want to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, we're uh, to the core. Uh, we, we, we're not shy about admitting that we are biased. We're, we're classical liberals, and we care deeply about liberal democratic procedures and justifiability. And we, we, we're looking, you know, when you look at the landscape today of, of how we structure government, rule of law is one of the most important restraints that we have on government officials. And we apply it almost everywhere, right? Um, we, we would hate to have judges that weren't constrained by the rule of law. We'd hate to have politicians that weren't constrained by the rule of law. So it's painstakingly, egregiously obvious that when it comes to one of the most important institutions in our economy, central banks, we do not apply the rule of same uh, rule of law framework. Um, we just think it, 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 it for for whatever reason we haven't applied it to to central banking historically, and now we we have this entrenched bureaucracy that is so used to operating outside the rule of law um, that we had to make a case for returning to the rule of law and actually creating laws that apply to our central bankers to give it the democratic justifiability necessary, um, to, to give it legitimacy and a free society. Right. So just to drill into that a little further, you know, so your folks' stance and your stance specifically, isn't that, you know, Hey, like, you know, it's not like sort of like a centrist one, if you will, on, on central bank issues I'm talking about, um, you know, where you're basically saying, hey, you know, there, there's some things that need to be adjusted. You're actually saying this has gone like out, out into space now. You, you actually want people to understand we have a system that's connected with other systems, as we previously discussed, whether it be the, you know, the financial, other financial institutions and so on. That isn't just, you know, doing a couple things that we disagree with from a policy perspective. You think, you think as I said, this is sort of out off the spectrum. It's into space. These people are operating over there sort of pushing the rule law above it in certain ways. And, and you don't think that people should be able to work in a framework like that, where they can make these kinds of decisions that are, that are so much impacting sort of our, our daily way of life, frankly, you know, and, and I, and, you know, for those listening, it might sound like I'm trying to rhetorically bump this stuff up, but, but this is, this is clearly the direction of your book. You're saying this is not a good thing. Yes, absolutely. We, we argue that we need generality and predictability in our monetary institutions. And that's what the rule of law provides in every other capacity. It makes rules general and equally applicable. You, can, you cannot just use your discretion and, you know, create, create a law or to undertake policy that just benefits certain groups. Uh, we we want to hold our monetary authorities to a much higher standard and to ensure that they're doing monetary policy that benefits the average person and protects money as it, it protects sound money as a property right of citizens rather than just a prerogative of central bankers and those with the most influence on them, such as the major financial institutions and politicians. So what would a central banking more disciplined by the rule of law in general look like? I'll ask a couple of specific follow-ups and maybe we'll get a little more nerdy and talk about specific policies and tools perhaps. But but in general, what would a central bank more disciplined by the rule of law look like? Is it just the idea that there there could be constitutional constraints on it? Is the idea that the central bank, um, you know, we should just get, get rid of the people in there and do what Milton Friedman said and replace them with a computer? So so what, what, what would one of, one of these rule of law central banks actually look like ideally? Yeah, so we discussed three different ways in which we think the rule of law could be applied to central banking, and we don't we don't make a case for any one of them in particular. We just kind of lay out the the pros and cons of each one and leave it at that. Though I, I think each of us has our own bias towards I think all towards the same one. Um, but there, there's a couple of different ways to create generality and predictability in money. One is to create a a strictly binding and enforceable rule, such as the Taylor rule, that central bankers have to follow. And there's actually a punishment mechanism if they don't follow it. 
And you could even throw in uh, rewards as well. So if they do actually obtain their, 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 the goal that we and follow the rule that we set out, they can get a reward. Um, if not, they're punished either financially or even lose their position. Um, it could even be held, um, you know, liable if there's, um, you know, egregious um, lack of fiduciary responsibility in trying to pursue that goal. Um, the second way to do it is to actually, and we get this from James Buchanan, is to actually constitutionalize money. Put money, you know, it's, it's a fundamental right of citizens to actually put it in a constitution along with other rights and allow, you know, allow citizens to actually hold the government accountable for failure to, to maintain sound money. Then the third, um, third way to do this is we get from F.A. Hayek, and this is free banking, to, to completely um, get rid of central banking altogether and turn um, the, the provision of money over to the private sector. This sounds crazy, and there's no way I could convince your listeners of this in, in just one podcast, as in even just a little small segment of a podcast. But there are a lot of serious scholars in modern scholarship um, looking at how this has worked historically and around the world in some places e- even today. Competing currencies issued by banks that oftentimes use gold and silver as a reserve um, um, that you can exchange it f- that currency for disciplines market providers of currency in terms of if they over if a private bank overinflates its currency, people are going to say, "Oh, that's there." I see what's happening, right? And they're going to go return that currency, demand gold and silver back, and then go put it in another bank and, and hold on to a different currency that is um, more sound. Um, so there's actually, uh, you know, the, there's no more knowledge and incentive problems. That's solved by the market mechanisms that work in every other capacity um, in improving economic growth and prosperity. Right. And, and just on drill into actually both of those a little further. So back to the, the constitutionalized money idea with James Buchanan. So this would actually enable like, obviously, I don't want to get into all literal legal mechanisms for this, but in, a, but in a caricatured sort of way, this actually, as you were saying, would enable people, the people to actually hold this institution accountable through, for instance, courts, uh, you know, maybe lawyers would start getting a little more brushed up on monetary policy if they had to bring a case somewhere. <laughs> but but in this way, you could almost see even the threat of some sort of case being taken to the Supreme Court about, you know, for example, the Federal Reserve has been acting in X, Y, and Z bad way for the past four years. This is a class action suit. It's actually violating, you know, our property right and money kind of thing. That, that would actually be, I think, quite a quite a disincentive to mess around too much in and of itself, right? Yes. It, it, we, I very much see this as, I don't know if, if you've ever seen Frog and Toad, but there's this little cartoon of a frog and toad and they're trying, they, they want to eat more cookies, but yeah. they know it's not good to eat more cookies. So they, they take it additional steps. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll put it in a box. But then of course they're sitting there like, well, we could just open the box. So it's not really a good constraint. So I, I think creating a rule would be creating a box. And then they're like, well, we could put the box up on a shelf. Okay. So that would be put in the constitution. It could still be violated. Certainly, um, you know, constitutional provisions have been violated throughout history. Mm-hmm. They've been overturned. Um, so it's still changeable, but it's at least harder to, there, there's more constraint there. And then, you know, of course we see the, the one that puts it the most, the cookies takes the cookies furthest away is going to be free banking. But of course, even free banking, of course, people can decide we're not going to do that anymore. And we're going to reestablish a central bank. So even that isn't, perfectly secure, but I think it's the one that um, moves the cookies furthest away um, and thus protects um, the people to make the decisions that, that we want them to make as as a society. Right. And, and actually, and just in my follow-up that I want to do on the free banking part too, and I, I agree with you, it maybe be a nice to actually, maybe you'll come back for a full episode, we'll talk about free banking or something like that. So we, <laughs> we could do that. But but just to just to actually supplement your point a little bit there and make the, the start of the case for it is that, you know, just as one example, I mean, if, if people think that, you know, competing currencies or different methods of payment and stores of value are sort of, you know, it's an impossible thing to think of, well, then they should probably check out the kind of credits that they probably carry around in their own electronic wallet, whether there's Amazon credits or, you know, Apple credits or, or whatever the case may be. I know that's not exactly what we'd be talking mm-hmm. about throughout an entire episode together, but but just that concept in and of itself, is, I think, is interesting. I think most people you know, should realize, number one, they're kind of just moving around numbers on a paper anyway with fiat currency and electronic banking. But on top of that, they people are figuring out other ways to, you know, pay each other and remuneration and so on and so forth. So, you know, t- technology right now, if anything, at any point in time is actually pretty interesting in bringing, enabling the fact that more knowledge can be brought to the individual consumer and also different methods of payment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I think it, 
you know, initially it's a very shocking proposition, but once people think about it, they're actually pretty accustomed to it. Um, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Michigan near the Canadian border and it was pretty common for us to use Canadian currency. I mean, it flowed in between and, you know, we just, we, it was easy to adjust to, right. It's just something we grew up with. Um, so it's not as crazy, you know, having competing currencies is not as crazy of an idea as many people would first uh, assume. Right. And I guess if people think about it internationally speaking, what's limiting competition among the currencies even we have now is ultimately just laws and legislation to begin with. I mean, the currencies that exist now could even compete further with each other. They just don't for a variety of regulatory reasons. Right. Yes. And in my favorite way of, of moving forward, I don't think this is politically feasible, um, but we'd be actually, you're not going to go up against this entrenched federal reserve bureaucracy or central bank bureaucracies. But one way you could do it is say, okay, we'll, we'll maintain the dollar, we'll maintain the federal reserve, but simply legalize the, the issuance of private currency, allow private banks to actually get into that space. Right. And if they do well against uh, government currencies, then so be it. And if they don't, so be it as well. There, there, there's no harm, no foul there. Um, but just simply legalize it um, to, to allow companies to innovate in that space, I think would be um, really good. We're seeing a ton of innovation in the crypto space, which, which I'm excited about. Uh, but there's so many constraints um, that prevent it from, from actually reaching its full capacity due to the, these legal tender laws. Right. And, and opening up that competition would be quite interesting, too, because, you know, people have different relationships with different brands and different experiences with them. And and everyone's going to say, well, how you can't trust the government. How are you going to trust this big corporation or something? It's like, well, it's not really about utopia, right? It's also about dispersing that risk and letting people make their own decisions and stuff. I've often said if American Express made a currency or actually started doing deposit banking, I would just move all my stuff to that away from one of the Canadian big banks, which <laughs> probably floors a lot of Canadian public policy people when when they say when they hear that but it but it's literally true and i think that's sort of a small example of it is like i would totally move all my deposit money over to american express away from a huge canadian institution which is relatively stable so i think like you know there's there's a lot to be said for just you know competing elements when it comes to the economy in general obviously but in money why not right that's ultimately the, the argument yes absolutely and, you know, I joked about it a little bit earlier um, where I said, like, you know, Milton Friedman had mentioned and he was half and had the half parts interesting to note. He was half joking that a central bank should just be re- replaced with a computer, as he saw in his day, computing getting better. Um, but but t- moving a, the half, that's a joke off the table for a second. In, in, in all seriousness, when it comes to I know, like, you know, maybe in your mind, it's just we shouldn't have a central bank. But assuming we are to and it's just supposed to control the money supply, is, is that especially today in 2021, I think Friedman said that in the 80s and 90s, is that actually that far-fetched of an idea that most, let's be modest, if not all, but most or a lot of what's going on in these institutions might just be better off controlled by eventual artificial intelligence and someone monitoring that or or a stable rule within computing that actually does something over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think most... You know, I'll, I'll speak on behalf of most free market monetary economists. I think they would be in favor of moving to a, at least a more explicit rule like NGDP targeting. But if you could even hand it over to a computer where there was even um, less ability for discretion to enter the picture. Of course, uh, in designing the rule, there's discretion and everything like that. So it's right. not perfect, uh, but at least moves it a little bit further away um, from that discretion. Um, I think that's entirely feasible. And what I like about it is you could still maintain central banking infrastructure, but you would obviate the need for such large staff economists at central banks. So it's a way to kind of unwind the bureaucracy without actually doing a, a, such a huge adjustment that it'd be a, a shock to the system. Right. And and I think actually we're, we're about at the time where we're going to move us ahead to more of our formal wrap up. So, so let, let me say, you, you know, we, we've talked about a lot, Dan, and I want to try and bring the conversation full circle. In each episode, we ultimately want the guests to have the last word and final thoughts. So, so let me officially ask you our final question, which is in everything we've talked about, what, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether the rule of law can fix monetary problems? In other words, if you want to leave someone with one or two or a handful of takeaways in anything and everything we've talked about, what would those be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, we, we, we think money is fundamental to a free society. It's one of the, the core components of economic freedom. And if you look throughout world history, some of the worst catastrophes, the, the fall of the Roman Empire, the French Revolution, Hitler's rise to power, the Great Depression, the financial crisis, 
all involved the undermining of sound money. So well money is is one of those topics that is boring until it's not. <laughs> and right now is one of those times when it's, people are starting to take interest in what we do. Um, but you know, no, during normal times, monetary economists, we're, we're the economists that bore even other economists, right? They're like, oh, but when it becomes important during times when we realize that sound money is being undermined, um, it, it could have um, huge implications for an economy. So it's so important, even when times are ordinary and you, you, you know, kind of falls to the background because you're looking at property rights and limited government, um, rule of law, all these other components of economic freedom appear more important. We cannot lose sight that um, sound money is is the, the basis of why capitalism outperforms central planning. That the, 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 the that you have prices that adjust that entrepreneurs could use to make calculations, and then after they make their d- decisions, they can actually have a feedback mechanism. That's what encourages the productivity and innovation of capitalism, makes it superior to central planning. If we allow monetary disequilibrium, we're going to undermine that process, thereby the efficiency of capitalism. And for too long, we've left central banking, the control of money to, um, to like I said, an epistocracy, uh, discretionary experts, and they see it as a state. So we use um, James Skye uh, as a political scientist has wrote, written a book, Seen Like a State. And, he, and we argue that central banking is seen like a state. We're, we're, we're not thinking of money as a property right of citizens. We're thinking of it as a, um, a tool of governing and controlling people and uh, moving the economy. And it's a, it's a process that's very susceptible to um, bureaucratic and special interest group pressures and certainly political pressures. And as we argue, it is, um, we, they don't ha- even have the knowledge required to do it. It's means and inconsistent. And if you want uh, central banking is compatible with liberal democracy and self-governance. We need to find ways to creatively apply the rule of law to our monetary institutions. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. Dan Smith, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Pleasure to be with you, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.